This is an ABC podcast. I'm Lisa Leong. Trust me, I'm a former lawyer. On This Working Life Today, we're going deep on trust. Now, intrinsically, you know that trust is essential at work, but how do you know when you've got it? And if you don't, how do you cultivate more of it? With me is Dr. Paul Zak. Paul is a neuroscientist who spent decades running fascinating research linking the neurotransmitter oxytocin to the building of trust at work. Paul, tell me about your research. We ran studies in which we put people in groups and measured neurochemical responses and measured uh, brain activity while they worked to try to understand how to organize people for the most effective productivity. And in fact, as you suggested, we found that um, a big area that was um, driving up productivity was trust between team members. So whenever people are put in groups, naturally there will be some frictions, uh, even at home with people we love, right? There are frictions. So at work, we're going to have frictions. We can think of trust as a kind of lubricant. When trust is high, I have deposited a lot in the Lisa bank. And if I do something that um, makes you a little unhappy, well, we still have a lot of lubrication because that, um, that one little friction that I put in, maybe unintentionally, um, isn't so important because we've built up a high level of trust. But when trust is low, that little friction leads to poor performance, poor teamwork, and disengagement at work. And so what's trust got to do with neurochemicals then, Paul? Um, so there was actually a rich animal literature uh, in um, showing that this neurochemical oxytocin seemed to indicate that somebody was safe to be around. And I thought, gosh, uh, trust is this promoter of effective teamwork. Maybe oxytocin is doing this trust signaling job in humans. And that's what we found. And so the, the short story is, in my laboratory, we developed a protocol that didn't involve drilling into people's skulls, which is what's done in animals, to measure the brain's acute production of oxytocin. And what we found was that when someone trusts you, your brain produces this neurochemical almost always. And interestingly, it motivates you not only to reciprocate trust, that is to help them in return, but it increases our sense of empathy. So now I'm a better team member. I'm a better social creature with oxytocin because I understand not only what you'd like me to do, but why that matters so much to you. Can you tell us a little bit more about oxytocin and what promotes and inhibits it? Yeah. Um, so oxytocin is one of about 200 chemicals that are active in your brain. And what we've shown over this 20 years of research is that after nearly any positive interaction, your brain produces some oxytocin. So um, someone you really like and generally produce more oxytocin, someone who seems really safe, really interesting, you produce more oxytocin, and that motivates social interaction. So the first takeaway is that putting people together at work is not uh, an abnormal thing for humans because we form connections very rapidly uh, via a, a brain network that oxy oxytocin activates. So working together for common goals, Everybody does it. It's quite natural. It's not, uh, we don't have to force anybody to do this. That's the first thing. The second is, because we've studied this so intensively, we can start to ask what promotes oxytocin release and what inhibits it. And two of the inhibitors are factors that arise at work all the time. One of those is aggressive responses. So testosterone is a uh, big inhibitor of oxytocin. So that comes with not only overt aggression, but things like bullying, 
exclusion, um, sort of covert aggression, but also from what I call a uh, dominus displays. So I walk in the office when we were doing that in the $5,000 suit and I look down my nose at my direct reports. That's a dominus display that says I'm important, you are not. And that's a stressor for human creatures, right? We are social. We want to be included. Uh, the second factor besides aggression that inhibits oxytocin release is something we all face, which is high levels of chronic stress. So if we're under enough stress, our brain's in survival mode. I'm just trying to get to the new next 10 minutes of this darn interview with you, Lisa, and I'm so stressed <laughs> out that I can't really connect. I'm kidding, of course. And so <laughs> if we think about um, modulating those two factors at work, those are, those are management decisions, right? I can um, create environments, as Google has found, that create psychological safety so I feel comfortable at work. I can take risks. I can be vulnerable, right? In that case, I have an opportunity to innovate, to take chances and control my work life and not be punished implicitly or explicitly if I make mistakes. And the second is um, being in a space where we don't overstress individuals. So in the U.S., classically, for example, investment banking, people would work 100 plus hours a week. That's all gone away, uh, partially because millennials and younger will not accept that. They want quality of life. But also people just quit, right? So I, you can work me to death. I'm going, you know what? I got skills. I can go take this uh, different, you know, somewhere else. So um, there's something in the U.S. that has developed called the Firm 40, which is you work 40 hours a week, work hard for those 40 hours, and at 5.05 p.m., go home. I want the parking lot to be empty by 5.15. So really focusing individuals on doing their best work, doing it intensively, but then turning it off and having a chance to refresh and recreate a little bit. And if I'm a manager at work, Paul, and I want to start cultivating trust um, and, in, and increasing oxytocin in the workplace, what uh, sort of, you know, where would I start, for example? Yeah, I mean, I would always start with measurement, right? So I'm going to put my scientist hat on. Um, and so um, I work with companies to develop, for example, surveys um, that you can use to assess whether trust is high or low. Um, I have a startup company that's created a wearable technology. So it takes data from smartwatches and it's built a platform so anyone can measure how effectively teams are working together and individuals. What are we measuring, uh, my heart rate? Yeah, so we did, uh, you know, many, many years of research mapping out the pathways from the brain processes that uh, cause oxytocin release. They have downstream effects on the peripheral nervous system. So in particular, the nerves that control the heart. So we can basically feed in heart rate data from a smartwatch, and we've applied algorithms in the cloud to measure in real time how effective that team is working, how effectively that person is working on their own. Um, so we call this neurologic state immersion. It's kind of like, um, oh, I've never done this, Lisa, you know, but uh, I've heard that people occasionally cry at the end of movies, right? So that's immersion, <laughs> right? You're so immersed in this experience. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, you're sucked in. So it's kind of like the idea of flow, if you've heard that idea, right? When I'm really yeah. working effectively on my own or with a team, I lose track of time. I enjoy it. I'm really sucked in. So this oxytocin is a big part of that. There's some other components too, attentional responses. So immersion is a state that, that tells me, I, my brain's digging this experience. And when I dig that experience, I put in more discretionary effort, but it's just super useful. Don't, we all want to do, you know, we're all just going to do better what we love doing. 
and uh, being able to identify that even for an individual. Like, do you really love doing accounting or do, would you rather work with clients? I don't know. Give me a little of both. Let's find out. Uh, and this all sounds good, but what happens if I don't have the ability to even do the measurements or move people around? What happens if, you know, can you identify any levers, Paul, that I can use as a manager to even just turn the dial a little bit in terms of the trust levels in my organisation? Yeah, we found actually um, eight key levers that uh, individuals can find and you can measure these. Uh, you can develop your own survey. There are surveys online. Um, there are different ways to do it. So I'll just state them really quickly, but they're all measurable and manageable. So these are the eight foundations for organizational trust. And it won't surprise you that um, these eight uh, foundations have a nice acronym. Somehow, magically, oh. <laughs> they spell out the acronym oxytocin. I don't know how that happened. Um, oh, Paul. So <laughs> easy to remember. Okay, hit us so, with it. <laughs> yeah, so I'll go through this real quickly. So the, the first, uh, the O is for ovation. That's really celebrating victories. That's the, the gratitude, being thankful. Um, the second is called expectation. So that's building in challenges. People love challenges. Give them a chance to reach new goals. But again, don't punish them if they've tried their best and haven't, haven't reached them. Uh, the Y is for yield, which is allowing people autonomy in how they execute projects. The T is for transfer, which is for self-management. Um, o is for openness. So sharing information broadly is really important to building trust. Um, C is for caring, intentionally building relationships with others. The I is for invest, investing in employees so they have a chance to grow personally and professionally. And the last stands for natural. So being yourself at work, right? If you can just bring your authentic self to work, there's no work Lisa and home Lisa. They're just Lisa. And so um, really, you know, just being yourself at work, if you can do that, then you trust other people. So all eight of those factors, I set them very fast, but... Um, well, there's an interesting point in that celebration because you actually say in your book um, that, you know, those monthly employee awards, that's not effective recognition. So why is that? Right, because it doesn't link the action um, in the brain to the reward. So if we want to incentivize more discretionary effort, it should be a week or less between when someone did something extraordinary, an employee did some extraordinary extra effort, and that recognition. Um, so I really want to link those in the brain. And I say in the book, I we want to have um, we want to have these ovations be public, so that we set up aspirations for everyone else in the in the company. So even if you're an introvert like me, it's nice to be recognized if you you know done something uh, that required extra effort. And so just having this, again, a gratitude at a meeting, a small gift. Um, the online retailer Zappos does this beautifully. So they have um, what they call Zappos dollars or Zollers. So employees have a whole uh, account of these and they can give them to other colleagues at Zappos to thank them for helping them with a the project. But importantly, when they give them, and these dollars can be used at the end of the year for, uh, for swag, uh, you know, gifts and trips or whatever. But importantly, when you give those dollars, you're asked to actually write a little note to that person telling them why you're sending them $20. And that's the key, right? That now I've built a tie with this person, right? So if he or she's going to ask me for help, am I going to say no? No. I, you know, she's been so nice to me, of course. So that's the way we build trust is building those, intentionally building those relationships. Paul, tell me about what happened at the aluminium giant Alcoa when Paul O'Neill took over as CEO in the late 90s, because it's a great example of a leader building trust with his employees. 
What Anil uh, did because he was into safety, he said the number one job at Alcoa is to return our employees home safely. And the board of directors who had hired him said, you're out of your mind. This is heavy industry. People get hurt all the time. He said, no, I want zero injuries. I want to report on my desk every morning with the injuries. I want a nurse to call up that person every day they're out and find out how we can help them get better. Do they need a ride to the hospital? Do they need someone to pick up their medications? And we've got to track um, you know, all these things. So there's nothing more important to getting people to perform at their highest levels than keeping them safe. O'Neill had been uh, CEO of Alcoa for about three months, and a 20-year-old man who had just recently gotten married was uh, pulled into a machine and killed. And O'Neill basically stopped production and said, no more. We're not going to have another death at Alcoa. And they would have, you know, a death every year or two. Uh, he said, we can't do this. No one is going to put their, you know, their energy and passion to making this place better until we can stop this. And there's just, it was inadequate safety precautions. So um, I think caring starts from the, from the bottom up. And from a leadership perspective, I'm a big believer, no matter what your position, you've got to spend a, a, a day a month on the front lines, right? Work with those employees who are customer facing, who are creating value for the company. See what they do. Put on a hard hat and see what that's like. Um, so the CEO of uh, Costco, which is a big uh, kind of uh, warehouse company, I'm not sure if they're in Australia or not, uh, was very famous for wearing a short sleeve white shirt with a name tag like everybody else. And he would go to their Costco stores and move boxes with the, you know, the stalkers. He would check out employees at the cashier's desk. He would spend more than a day a month in their stores, talking to customers, talking to employees. And gosh, if you're a team member, yeah, do the work, do the dirty work. Why not? See what's happening. That's how you manage a, a company and how you get buy-in from everybody else. Dr. Paul Zak and his latest book is Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies. Listening to this working life on the very trustworthy Radio National. I'm Lisa Leong, but sometimes trust can bring you undone. My name is Vanessa. About 20 years ago, I had a, a massive breach of trust uh, that happened to me. Well, I worked for a funds management firm, I was head of compliance, and the manager that I trusted deeply basically threw me under under a bus. There was a you know a major issue, a breach. So although I was, uh, I was accountable because of my role as head of compliance, it, it was through no fault of my own that this, uh, that this whole issue happened. My manager uh, did the wrong thing. Um, the result of that, you know, I ended up having to leave the organisation. I, I still wrestle with it and struggle with, uh, you know, the impact that that had for me personally um, because it was a job that I loved and so on but it really made me think about trust and I, I learned a lot about through that experience about how much trust we should place uh, in the hands of others about how no matter the values of a person um, many people will do things to protect their own jobs you know their own investments or their reputation um, even if that means breaking the law or messing with other people's careers um, or throwing people under a bus, which is what happened to me. What I learned through that was the trusting yourself um, and your own purpose, staying true to your own values regardless of the cost. 
and only placing as much trust as is needed in the hands of others to ensure your own performance um, and adherence to your purpose and values. I think that's a wise thing. Um, I call that little T trust, um, as opposed to big T trust, which is trusting in in a higher purpose. In, in my case, that's God. You know, in others, it might be the universe. Um, so it, um, yeah, it really helped me focus and understand in a, in a workplace setting. Of course, we have to trust people, but the question is how much do we trust? How much do we place in, in the hands of others? With me is Professor Nicole Gillespie. Nicole is from the University of Queensland and she's extensively studied trust in organisations, particularly in relation to crises. Nicole, what do you think about Vanessa's story? Yeah, unfortunately, Lisa, Vanessa's story is not uncommon. Uh, I've been running you know, workshops, executive education for almost 15 years now around trust. And the stories that you hear um, often revealed in group settings, um, really sensitive, really harrowing experiences. Um, and what I also find is you know, after the workshops, often people want to have a one-on-one -on -one because it often raises sometimes experiences in the workplace from many years ago that still impact them, that they're still grappling with, just like Vanessa described there. So trust is so important for the workplace. Um, and when we have it, you know, we relish and it helps us to thrive um, and achieve with others. But when we don't have it, when we're in that environment of distrust or when we get thrown under under the bus, like Vanessa described, it can be so distressing and that psychological distress can really stay with people for some time. So tell me about the meta-analysis that you've done about trust in teams and more about your findings. Yeah, sure, Lisa. So essentially, we've known for a long time that um, trust can enhance performance in teams, but there was a lot of mixed evidence. Um, some studies were reporting a positive relationship, some a negative, some no relationship at all. So what we did was we uh, did an extensive search and found all of the studies that had been published looking at the connection between trust and team performance. And we analysed the data set, which included over 7,700 teams from 112 independent studies. And essentially what this did was it confirmed that um, when people trust in the team, that this really does enhance team performance. And we found that that uh, connection exists above and beyond the team's trust in the leader and above and beyond the past performance of the team. And what we also found through this meta-analysis was that there's certain situations where trust in the team makes more difference for the team's performance. So trust is more important when team members need to work interdependently. So for example, like a basketball or football team, um, where to get the job done, you have to be coordinating and interacting and all inputting at the same time. So trust is more important in that context than in situations where people can just do their part and then pass it on to someone else who does their part. We also found that trust was more important when teams are cross-disciplinary. So this is basically where people are bringing unique skill sets to the team and unique experience. Um, and also when they're cross-hierarchical. So when you've got members from different levels um, within the organisation, perhaps some senior people mixed in with people um, who perhaps are working more on the front line. So this really helped us to understand, um, you know, when trust really matters and when it matters more for team performance. And how has the pandemic tested trust at work, Nicole? So as many of us have experienced, 
when a crisis or the current pandemic hits, it, it makes us feel really uncertain and, un, and more vulnerable. Suddenly everything becomes predictable that we've known. So what we found in our research was that in this context, people start to question their habitual trust, whether that's in their leader or, or in the organisation, sometimes even in their peers at work. So they knew that that trust was well-founded in normal times, but this pandemic is unprecedented. And as organisations have really started to feel the economic impacts of this. Uh, you know, many employees are saying, well, is my job safe? Um, you know, can I still depend on this organisation to look after us? Are we still going to work um, with the same set of values and with the same set of goals? Um, so naturally, in this kind of situation, it, it jolts people out of that habitual way of trusting and they need reassurance in this context. So not just the normal displays of trust, but if you like, um, over and above, they need more reassurance that their trust is well-founded. So if we go back to Vanessa's example, she talked about how she realised that she had misplaced her trust. And this is uh, important that uh, in a context or a disruption, employees, you know, get that jolt and say, well, is my trust still well-founded? And they need and seek that reassurance from their leaders and from their peers that trust is well-founded still. How do you know when it's well-founded and when it's not? Exactly. So look, it may be helpful to talk about what trust really is. So we talk about it as being the willingness to be vulnerable to the actions of another party, that could be your leader, a team member, the organisation as a whole. And why are we willing to be vulnerable? Well, it's because we have confident, positive expectations that the other person will, will do the right thing, that their actions, their intentions towards us are benevolent. So there's always a risk in trusting another, but we're prepared to take that leap of faith because we've amassed evidence that this person or this organisation is indeed trustworthy. Now, what do we mean by trustworthy? Well, there's been an incredible amount of research that points us to three key bases for trustworthiness. The first is around um, competence. So if we're going to trust someone to do something for us, we need to know that they've got the skills, the knowledge, the expertise to do that well. So, for example, you may trust a team member for their technical competence. They may be brilliant at doing the analysis and writing the report, but you know that they're not the right person to put in front of a client um, to present that work or to perhaps um, sell that work to other people or bring in new client work. So that's just one example. You know, part of working in a team and working with others and trusting them is knowing what are their skills, what are their strengths, where is trust well-placed and where is it better to perhaps use someone else in the team. So another foundation for trustworthiness is what we call benevolence. So this is about, you know, knowing that this person genuinely cares about you, you know, has concern for you and your interests, um, that they're not self-interested, but rather are other interested. So the other important aspect is integrity. So this is about consistently adhering to commonly accepted moral or ethical standards. You know, is this person honest? Do they tell the truth? Um, when they make a commitment, do they follow through on it? You know, can I trust that they that their words will match their actions? And Nicole, when things do go wrong at work, how can we rebuild trust? 
So it really depends on what's gone wrong with trust. So what, how did it get breached or violated? We know that the hardest types of violations to repair are ones around integrity. And this is because, you know, if, if you're caught out for lying um, or a really serious kind of value breach where you've, you've really put yourself before other people, well, people see this as diagnostic of your inherent character. They see this as something that if you've done it once, then you could do it again. Um, so while you may you know, say that you're sorry, they still may have that lingering doubt. So it's easier to recover from competence failures when something goes wrong in terms of our delivery, because we all know that, you know, maybe you didn't get a lot of sleep last night, um, maybe you've just got a lot of other pressures on and you didn't have the time to perhaps put into it. So we know that our, our competence and ability to deliver can go up and down, but we don't see that as an inherent characteristic. We recognise that that can be situationally based as well. So... If it is an integrity violation, those tougher ones to repair, it still can be repaired, but it does require concerted effort. It's really about having that you know, authentic, honest conversation, being able to take the perspective of the person um, who you violated their trust, hearing how it was for them, acknowledging that, um, and then really apologising for what you've done. Thanks, Nicole. My pleasure. It's been great to talk to you, Lisa. Professor Nicole Gillespie, Chair in Organisational Trust from the University of Queensland. And that's it from us this week. But if you enjoy our podcast, please take a minute right now and hit share and send it to a friend. Help them find the sunshine at work. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle, whom I trust to make me sound intelligible every week. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.